0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I'm really glad to be back with you again this morning. If we haven't met before, my name is Peter, and I'm one of the pastors here at Bradfield and Ruffham Baptist Church. People call us BRBC, and we are a church that loves Jesus together, and we want to help other people to do the same. So welcome to church this morning. Uh, If you missed last week, we started a new series in the book of Esther, and it's this story of all these intricate plots of how God's people live in the Persian Empire. And today, we're in chapter 2, and James is going to be opening that up for us. Well, I want to invite you now to take your Bibles out and turn to Esther chapter 2 this morning, and if you don't have it, it will come up on the screen, as always, next to me. Again, that's Esther chapter 2, give you a second to turn there. Esther chapter 2, starting in verse 1, we read these words. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch was in charge of the women let their cosmetics be given them and let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti this pleased the king and he did so now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai the son of Jair son of Shimei, son of Kish a Benjamite who had been carried away from Jerusalem Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Je- Jeconiah king of Judah whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther, who was... who also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai who had charge of the women and the young woman pleased him and won his flavor, his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best placed in the harem. Esther not made known her people or kindred for Mordecai had commanded her to not make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Asuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her, from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shagaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who has taken her as his own daughter to go into the king She asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all of the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head, and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai, just as when she was brought up by him. of the King. Over to James. Hey, good morning,
1: everyone. We are outside today. It's a beautiful day. Just a little bit of forewarning. It's there's going to be distractions here. I know it. Even though we're in the quiet countryside, there's going to be people going past cars, tractors, buses, voices in the background. (laughs) That's what you get with being outside. But it's lovely to be here. I love it. Okay, here's where we're going this morning. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever felt out of place before? You ever fit out of place? Maybe it was when you were on holiday and you didn't speak the language of that country. Or driving on the other side of the road, trying to understand some of the road signs that everybody else seems to get. Or what about, about, have you ever been to France before and you've gone to the local bakery and wanted to order a couple of baguettes and then kind of butchered the French language with your GCSE French and failed miserably? Or what about feeling out of place when you've said something awkward at a formal dinner, or not knowing what cutlery you should be using? What about sitting in a meeting and having no idea of what everyone else is nodding at? What about being the only person on your sports team who didn't score any points? Or what about feeling like you're the only person in the room who doesn't know how to pray like everyone else is praying? What about feeling like you're the only person in the room who seems to see something and then you're wondering why no one else seems to get it? I mean, have you ever had those moments in your life where you feel out of place? Now, we're looking at Esther chapter two today and it's all about a painfully manipulative beauty pageant. And again, the insatiable womanizer king is making his demands. And remember, this is following the brutal dismissal of Queen Vashti. But what continues to emerge in chapter 2, as in chapter 1, is the nature of this Persian empire. How heartless it is. How hard it is to live there. It's a brutal place. And God's people are out of place here. Now, in Esther 2, we get introduced to Mordecai and Esther, key characters to the story. Now, we know they're part of this exiled, expat Jewish community, living in a place where they don't quite belong. It's a hard place to live. Their ancestral homeland is hundreds of miles away, and they are different And what we see is the author subtly showing us in chapter 2 that there is a real distinction between the exiled community of God's people and the land that they find themselves living in. I'll say that again, it's so important for this morning. We see a real distinction between the exiled community of God's people and the land that they find themselves living in. And I want us to think about it like this, because this reality is true. It's the same for the followers of Jesus. Now, now I know we're not in the city of Susa, tiptoeing around a power-crazy, self-centered king. But we are trying to navigate this powerful and broken world. We're not several hundred miles removed from the land of our ancestors. But we are distinct from the people around us. And we never feel like we completely fit the ways of this world. You see, there's a sense that Esther and Mordecai in the Persian Empire are something of a small microcosm of what it means to be God's people in a broken and messy, sinful world. See, what we're going to find then in Esther 2 is that we get given plenty of insights as to what it looks like to live as God's people in the empire of this world. So my big question today is, oh so simply this, what does Esther 2 show us about living in the empire? What do we learn from Esther 2 about navigating the world where we as God's people don't completely fit? Because if we can understand that, it'll help us shape our expectations properly not catch us off guard and we'll be savvy to the shape of life in the empire. So what I'm gonna do is adapt a couple of helpful observations made by Christopher Ash, is a theologian who writes wonderfully about Esther. Now in this passage, we'll find at least three things we can learn about living in the empire. The first is about exploitation. The second is about our home and the third is about rewards, so life as God's people in the empire, exploitation, our home, and the rewards. So let's dig in. You got your Bibles in Esther two? Now remember what happened in chapter 1. The king had lost it at the party, he had burned with rage, when Queen Vashti had bravely refused to be paraded in front of people. Now that the king has calmed down, he's reminiscing about what happened. Have a look in verse 1 here. And after these, these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. So the king's personal attendants now have this idea, a bright idea. Hey, king, we've got a good idea. Let's go find a new first lady for you, now that we don't have Queen Vashti. Now, verses 2, 3, and 4, they basically explain their idea. So I'll paraphrase that. Here's what they say. Look, look, King, we're going to look everywhere. We'll even appoint people to look for us. And we're going to look for young unmarried women. And we'll bring them here and they can they can join your already existing massive group of women in charge of Hegai the eunuch. Then, once they've had all the beauty treatments... <laughs> You can then decide which one you like most. And then voila, we have a new king and a new first lady. Another king likes this idea. To the end of verse four, we see that he bites. So this pleased the king and he did so. Now there's a few things to note at this point that I think are really important. Firstly, the king already has a harem. So that means he's already got loads of women who are his. Now you might ask, well, why on earth does he need a queen then? Obviously it's not because he's been sleeping alone. Well, you'd be right. It's because he needs a first lady to keep up the appearances. This is the empire after all. Second thing we need to notice here, and this is so important, is to see how brutal this empire is. You see, this is not just a beauty competition. And I'll I'll code this because I know there's could be little ears listening in here. Th- this is a competition that involves visiting the king in the evening and leaving in the morning. I think you know what I mean. So so this is an abuse of power where beautiful young women are, are, are removed from their homes and perhaps even their fiancés and locked up in a harem of the most powerful man in the world. Third thing we need to notice. Did you see the title or the position? The way of life, the the word eunuch crop up a couple of times here. We saw it in chapter two, we've seen it in chapter one. What does that mean? Well, a eunuch is a young man who's been castrated for the purposes here of single-mindedly focusing on serving the king. It appears the empire needs a steady stream of castrated young men to serve in the king's courts. A uh, well-known ancient historian called Herodotus reports that 500 boys were taken from Babylonia and Assyria each year and castrated for service in the Persian courts. Now, author Michael Fox writes interestingly, said, Everyone's sexuality, not only the women's, was at the king's disposal. Can you see how brutal this empire is towards the weak? how it manipulates people. This is a brutal place. Now let's keep moving through this story because we get an introduction of some key characters. And there's an important emphasis that we'll need to store up for later in our series. Look at verses 5, 6, and 7. Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem... Now notice the repetition of carried away here. Among the captives carried away were Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Verse 7, he was bringing up Hadassah. That is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her in as his own daughter. Now, I wonder if you noticed something the author did there. Really interesting. The, the, the author made it so blindingly obvious to the reader that Mordecai and Esther are not from Persia the repetition of carried away, talking about their ancestors. It's like the author is saying, people, you need to know who these people are. They're not from around these parts. And don't miss this reader. They are different. Now, the next verse then moves back into the story. And we're told in verse 8 that these women are gathered together. And Esther's a part of that, too. But it reads that Esther was taken. I mean, it doesn't say, well, Esther thought this was a great idea. She thought she would go along and tag along with all of the other young women. And it doesn't say she decided to go or doesn't say after a little bit of encouragement she went. No, Esther is taken here. So, so Esther ends up in the king's harem. The women are then assessed, you can read it, on how promising they were and they were ranked accordingly. I mean, can you feel how, how merciless this is? How, how heartless and cutthroat this search process has been? But this is the empire. People exist for what they can do for the powerful. I'll repeat that. In this empire, people only exist for what they can do for the powerful. This is brutal. Anyway, Esther excels and she's put with the most promising of the young women. Now, I know there's a lot here, but let's keep following the story. Scan your eyes over verses 12, 13 and 14 in that big paragraph there. We're told about how this harem works and how this is going to pan out. There are two sections, one for the women who've not had relations with the king and another section for those who had. In the first section, they were prepared for the king and in the second, they joined that group and changed status. In the first section, they waited in some kind of a queue for the king and then then in the second, they, they waited to be summoned again. I mean, these women probably spent their lives in seclusion, they couldn't marry anyone, and, and unless they were chosen to be the queen, that was their life. But then it's Esther's turn. Have a look at verse 15. And when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle, uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And the result, what does the king think? Well, the king really, really, really likes her. Look at verse 17. The king loved Esther more than all of the women and she won grace and favour in the sight, in his sight more than all the other virgins, so that he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. I mean, the king is so pleased with this new queen that he throws another feast, but this one is for Esther, Now, I don't want us to see this as some kind of a happy ending to a ruthless selection process. This is the empire with a system that satisfies the powerful. Now, here's our first insight to being God's people in the empire, in this broken world. Here's what we find. We live in a world that exploits. The first thing we learn here is that we live in a world that exploits. Now, I mean, we might want to say something along the lines of, well, hang on a second, our world is so different to what we read here. I mean, this is the Persian Empire. It's far more degrading and lopsided and hurtful than anything we might find in the systems, the powers and the empires of our world today. I mean, these people lived thousands of years ago. Thank goodness this kind of stuff doesn't happen in the world today. We've grown out of such exploitation. Our world doesn't exploit people like this to satisfy the powerful. Well, if you thought that, you'd be so wrong. You see, our our sinful world is utterly brutal to the weak today. The empire of our world is broken. And however hard people have tried to sort it out, we live in a world today where the weak are crushed. We can't say exploitation is just over there at some point in history. We're dealing with the same stuff that has always been. And until Jesus comes back to restore it, the life of the Persian Empire and its exploitation will be in the world today. Think about it. Corruption is still rife in our world. Let's not be so naive to say that it's just in countries where tyrants rule. It's here too. It won't be too long before there is yet another news story revealing the fact that powerful people have used their positions of power to hurt others. You think about poverty; it's still here. I know there's been massive gains, but it won't take you long to see when you stand in the midst of a poverty-stricken community that there is a mountain to climb for these people every single day. And all the while, opulent nations lavish themselves, most often funded by strong economies that found their financial strength through exploitation in the first place. What about slavery? Slavery is a growing issue. Now, the hidden nature of it makes it really difficult to give an accurate statistic. But the best estimates are, is that the number of slaves today ranges from 21 million to 46 million. One in four of them children, and almost three quarters, 71%, are women and girls. And this goes on in the UK, too. The Modern Slavery Helpline, a government website, shows us, that they received a 68% increase of calls and submissions in the year ending December 2018. 68% more compared with the previous year. And then there were 5,144 modern slavery offences recorded by the police in England and Wales in the year ending March 2019. That's an increase of 51% from the previous year. This issue is growing. And then so many of these people are trafficked. Removed from their homes, and forced into labour and exploitation. The International Labour Organization estimates that there are currently 25 million victims of human trafficking. And annually, it's a business that globally generates an estimated $150 billion in profits. Now let's bring this down into our lives. Because this exploitation, exploitation isn't just these massive global and national issues. I wonder if you've experienced it before, where the powerful crush the weak. In the workplace, in your relationships, maybe in your family. I wonder if there's been moments in your own life where your stomach turned as you saw the dog-eat-dog cutthroat ways of this world, and how the weak got trampled by the powerful. You see, for us though, we open our Bibles and we get answers. The Bible clearly answers the questions about the brokenness of our world. That the bro- brokenness runs through all of us and it's called sin. This, this, uh, the effects of sin are comprehensive. From the earth that we stand on to the fibres of our bodies, things are not the way they should be. What was once a paradise is now fractured. And it's not just broken systems. It's also broken And sinful people like us. But this means for God's people, we're not surprised by our world's mess. So we approach such brokenness with with neither a naivety or a cynicism. So so God's people neither face the brokenness of our world with pretending that everything's okay, or, or walking around dumbfounded when the darkness of the human heart is exposed but neither do we approach the broken world with a hopeless pessimism and say nothing can be done, so therefore nothing will be done. No, no, this means we fight the exploitation that we see at every level, but at the same time we are not surprised when the empire of this world shows its true colors. Esther too is showing us as God's people, we will walk in a world that is messy and it hurts. We inhabit a sinful world where the powerful people use weaker people as stepping stones for their own benefit. You see, this is about being real with what we see and experience. How can we ever seek to make a difference until we're honest about what we see? We live in a world that exploits. But let's keep moving here. There's so much more to this. Have a look at verse 19 and 20. It's a sp- introduction to a strange part of the story, but we get yet another emphasis where the author shows us they're different. Look at this. Now, when the virgins were gathered together for the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, you know, where she had come from. So, as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just when she was brought up by him. You see here, there is yet another repeated emphasis. These people are different. They're showing us these people aren't like the place they find themselves in. They don't fully belong. Their home is a long way from Susa. They are not in Jerusalem. Their status is exiles. They're not of this powerful and empty empire. They do not fit. Now let's be honest, this is the normal way of life life for those who belong to God. We have this unerring sense that we don't completely fit this world. That we not only long for something different, we are destined for something different. We don't quite fit. This is not our eventual home. So here's the second thing we learn about life in the empire of this world as being the people of God. Secondly, we live far from home. Now, this is consistent with the New Testament teaching too. You turn to First Peter, and this seems to be where he's writing from. Hey, we are God's people, and we are foreigners, and we're exiles. The church in Babylon, he says. And it seems that like the rest of First Peter is, is about living the way of the exile life. We're in the empire of this world, but we are not of the empire of this world. Now the Bible shows us this, that our eventual and eternal home is to be with Christ. And then our earth will be restored, it will be renewed, a sinless world. Revelation shows us that. No more tears, no more exploitation, no more injustice, no more pain. But that home is so far removed from what we see today. And so we feel far from home. So the Christian life is one that is marked with a longing for home. We have this perpetual homesickness. Have you ever felt that before? I remember when I lived in Chicago for a few years, hadn't been home in ages, and though I loved the city life, there were days where I felt out of place and I just longed to come home to eat the food I knew so well, to smell the smells, to spend time with the people, to do the Suffolk life. I missed it. I felt homesick. And that's true for so many of our BRBC family today. You're thousands of miles away from the place that you would call home. And so you know that homesickness. Romans 8, Paul writes about this in verse 23 Not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. We will feel like the odd, out-of-place exiles until our eternal, earth-renewed home is a present reality. This means that we are also looking forward to what's coming. Christians are the people who anticipate what's on the horizon, and we know it's going to be better. You know, Christmas seems a million miles away, but you know the anticipation that surrounds Christmas – The children tingling with excitement. I love it. The weeks leading up to it. There is this sense of expectation. The people of God live with an expectation. We're looking forward to what God has in store. But it also means we're different. Because we are not fully and finally home, we are different. And our future home hope means that we live differently today. What we are hoping for shapes our lives today. And therefore we form a community that makes this world think you guys are different from the rest and you have a hope set on something else. So let's have a look at the third thing here. Not only are we seeing the exploitation of the world, not only do we feel far from home, there's something more here. Now this camera of the story still strangely fixes on Mordecai. He's hanging out at the city gate and he hears about an assassination plot. Have a look at verse 21. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Terush, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So Mordecai then tells this to Esther. Esther then tells the king, and this is then found out. Have a look at verse 23. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged in the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now, it seems like a weird part of the story, doesn't it? A strange inclusion, because then it carries on with the rest of the main plot of Esther. I mean, why is it there? It feels maybe a little bit out of place. But I think we're being shown something. Mordecai's honest and helpful work has been overlooked and forgotten. And as theologian Christopher Ash observes, Mordecai has been left unrewarded for being something of a saviour to the king. I mean, do you see something of the irony? This near all powerful king of Persia had his life saved by an unimportant exiled Jew. And this good work is glazed over and left unrewarded. Here's the third important insight. We see as life, as the people of God in the empire. Thirdly, we live unrewarded. And again, this is the case for God's people today. Wherever we find ourselves, we live unrewarded. Now I'm guessing Mordecai had read Jeremiah 29 verses 4 and 7. Jeremiah writes to the exiles and gives them some instruction on how to live. Look at this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all of the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem and Babylon. Doesn't it look like that Mordecai has read exactly that and done it? He's gone after the welfare of the city he lives in and he saved the king. But there's a lack of reward, isn't there? A lack of reward for seeking the welfare of the world. And that's true for God's people today. Now, I know the church isn't perfect. And I know there's some really messy spots. People like to point them out. But when you take a close look in history, At the normal work of the average, simple follower of Jesus, you will see something amazing when it comes to seeking the welfare of our world. God's people, we fiercely seek the good of the streets, the homes, the communities, the groups, the nations we find ourselves a part of. We start schools, we build businesses, we feed through famines, we comfort the lonely, we support the destitute, we welcome the outsiders, we make families, we heal families, we care in pandemics, we give joyfully, we give generously, we give sacrificially, we give voices to the voiceless, we advocate, we are the salt of the earth, we are a light on the hill, we get in the gutters, we go the extra mile, we go out of our way. Yes, we are in the empire of this world. But yes, we are not passive, we are on the move. And this is just for starters. But saints, let us not be put off or put out or surprised. Let us not be embittered or entitled when our legacy is unnoticed and constantly unrewarded. That is simply part of the deal. Jesus shows us that. We live unrewarded lives in the seen and the unseen, in the words and the deeds of adoration and sacrifice. Life in the empire of this world is unrewarding and it can hurt. Rejection and pain are also to be expected, but we don't stop in our single-minded, life-giving pursuit and proclamation of Jesus. We don't get soured by the empire's hurts. Instead, we use them. And in God's strength, we redeem what's under our noses and beyond. It doesn't matter how many metaphorical lemons we are given by the empires of this world. We, by God's grace, keep making the refreshing lemonade of the gospel. Now, you might get to this point and you think, well, hang on a second, this, this is so bleak. I mean, we're in this world that exploits. We are far from home. And we live unrewarded lives. Wow, that sounds miserable. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, you might be thinking, but why be thinking, why on earth would I want to live a life like that in a world like this? Well, let me explain. The Persian Empire is empty and shallow. Its power is purely a parade. And we live in a world that's no different. It means the world we live in leaves us wanting. And with just a few moments of your thought and reflection, you are left with a longing for something better, hungry for something deeper, richer and more meaningful, something better beyond what this world can offer. And here's the good news, that through Jesus, we can have all of that and more. You see, through the cross of Jesus, we see that Jesus counterintuitively takes on and defeats the empires, the exploitations, the hurts and our sin. And through the resurrection, Jesus proved that he had come to make everything sad come untrue. And on top of that, he gives his exiles the concrete expectation that one day we will be home, standing in the sunshine of a renewed creation. Jesus gives us a hope and a home that the world never could. See, in Esther 2, we've met these two key characters, Esther and Mordecai. They are different. And we're not left guessing that. And we begin to see what life for God's people in the broken world looks like. We're in a world that exploits. We are far from home. We live unrewarded lives. But the people of God, Jesus' exiles, will one day be home. And it's that very hope that drives our lives in the empire. I remember coming back from living in the States. I hadn't been home for a few years. I can remember the feelings of being out of place in a foreign country. But I will never forget what it felt like to come home. Pulling off the A14 at Baton, and driving the final stretch home seeing the faithful oaks, the windy hedgerows, the quirky villages, the tired old pubs, the whitened wheat fields. This is home. You know, one day we will be home, but until then, we live in the empire. So may we live in the empire faithfully and wholesomely, sober-minded about what exile life is like, but never ever losing the hope we have in Jesus.
0: Well, it has been a delight to be together this morning. May we learn how to live in this world together, proclaiming the glories and goodness of Jesus together. But now, as we go, may you hear these words of assurance from Psalm 121 The Lord will keep you from all ev- evil, He will keep your life, the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Go in peace, saints.